Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast, our first genuine live recording. Hi, guys. Give yourselves a round of applause. I am panel camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined, uh, as always, by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, the thought has occurred to me that this entire podcast could just be understood as an elaborate way for people to understand how to pronounce our names. I, it, it is, a, it is a, a not insignificant benefit of the podcast. Thank yes, you, panel. Yes. Um, uh, how are you doing? How's your Atha? How was your travels? Uh, they were fine. I'm having an amazing conference. I will apologize. Uh, I've been here since the Leadership Institute, so I'm at that point in the conference when I no longer eat the healthy snacks. <laughs> I've downshifted to potato chips and candy bars. So, um, you know, caveat for the podcast listeners and hello to everybody out there. And we are joined for the first time uh, and uh, so pleased to be joined by Kareem Kupchandani. Uh, Kareem, you are making that t-shirt work in a way that just puts me to shame. Um, uh, I think that's generally my, my job at Atha. Is to put is, me to shame? Uh, I mean, <laughs> no, just, just for now. But, uh, no, I just, I, fashion is important to me. Well. We are very proud to have you in the t-shirt and on the podcast. Um, uh, today we have uh, three exciting topics to discuss. We're going to lead off by talking about Patricia Ybarra's uh, remarkable new book, Latinx Theater in the Times of Neoliberalism. Um, uh, we are going to talk about the conference itself, ATHA 2018 in Boston. What have you seen? Uh, what have you done? What, did, what do you think? What were you thinking, et cetera? Um, we are going to do a, segments, a segment on our own professional failures, which I might have underprepared, and it, I'm just trying to not think about what Some of us might... overprepared that, actually, <laughs> panel. <laughs> I, I overprepared in the sense that I have a lot of, like a selection of failures to talk about. Um, but we'll see how that goes. And we'll wrap up with our drafts. Um, before that, we'll do a you know, brief mention of some news items, and before that, um, we also want to begin by acknowledging uh, the land that we're sitting on. Uh, we respectfully acknowledge that this conference is meeting on the traditional lands of the Wampanoag people, um, and we recognize the enduring presence of indigenous people on this land. Um, so now, news roundup. Uh, really, the conference is all I have to talk about. Um, all that I did was make a list of some of the awards that were given out. Um, if you've been here uh, since Thursday, then you got to see the, the, the uh, presidential address and the award ceremony. I will not mention all of the awards, but a few of the, um, of the big ones are ones that are special to us on the podcast. Um, Wendy Ahrens, Natalia Baldiga, and Sarah Figal won the Digital Scholarship Award for their fabulous new um, uh, online open access access translation of Lessing's Hamburg Dramaturgy. Um, yeah. Very cool, very cool, check yeah, it out. Yeah, a very exciting project, and I'm super psyched about that because we are having uh, Wendy and Natalia come to, uh, come to watch you later in the academic year, uh, or in this upcoming academic year to talk about that, so I'm super psyched about that. Um, Judith Hamera won the Outstanding Book Award for Unfinished Business, Michael Jackson, Detroit, and the Figural Economy of American Deindustrialization. So, 
I will mention that Lisa Freeman uh, got runner-up for her book Anti-Theatricality and the Body Public, which we read um, and talked about on episode 13, which feels like it felt like it should. It was just like six months ago, but I guess it was about a year ago. Um, uh, Rose Bonchek of Brook Brooklyn College won Outstanding uh, Teacher of Theater. Um, uh, she gave a speech that I thought was remarkable, and maybe I'll ask you about it, Sarah, in the uh, segment on, on Atha. Uh, she mentioned cell phone use and social isolation. Um, I wondered if you had thoughts about that. Uh, Many but hold thoughts. The, but hold them. Caridad <laughs> um, um, Svitch won the Ellen Stewart Career Achievement in Professional Theater Prize. Um, um, and Eleanor Fuchs won career achievement in academic theater. Um, somehow I thought she had already won this prize, but I think I get my prizes confused between Aster and, and Atha. She mentioned in that speech, she revealed that she had been, she had played a small role in a, what I believe was a CBS TV movie about a mining disaster. And if anyone can find a, video, a clip of this or this video, I promise we'll do an entire hour on the podcast <laughs> about it. Um, so that's the news as, as, we, as we see it. Um, why don't we dive right into talking about Patty's book? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so we read Latinx Theater in, in the Times of Neoliberalism, which was published this year uh, by Northwestern University Press. Um, it is, in a nutshell, a consideration of works by several Latinx playwrights, um, Sherry Moraga, Victor Ca uh, Cazares, Coco Fusco, Michael Johnson Garces, Chiara Hudes, Octavio uh, Solis, among many others. Um, and it is seen through the lens of neoliberalism, which is to say uh, the policies favoring privatization, uh, the mobility of capital and labor, um, and in Ibarra's terms, uh, an agentive strategy of capital accumulation supported by state power. Um, so for Ibarra, these playwrights engage in theater as a sort of generative mode of political thinking about neoliberal capitalism. And there are some really strong interpretive themes that go through all of the chapters, um, including, uh, I guess, what I would call formalistic themes. Uh, the, the recurring idea that um, the theatricality of theater, as opposed to the capacity of theater to generate um, the illusion of reality, is how these playwrights and these theater artists are uh, creating new ways of thinking about this, um, about neoliberalism and its consequences. Um, uh, so for her, she, the, the, the tendency to veer away from um, realistic staging choices, realistic mise-en-scene, uh, makes the representation of certain kinds of violence, economic violence, um, possible. So the book is remarkable. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. I'll just say a couple of things. One is that for a book that which is, you know, largely where the evidence in the book is largely plays and readings of plays. There's a, a, an unusual abundance of uh, sociological and historical um, context, uh, which is unsurprising coming from Patricia Barra, uh, who's quite an accomplished historian and trained in in historiography. Um, so I think at first glance, I think, okay, this is a this is a book about a kind of cadre, a generation, a set of Latinx playwrights, um, but you learn, you really get a primer course in the way that uh, neoliberalism has had effects in Latin America, specifically, you know, more specifically Mexico and Cuba throughout the book. Um, and I, I guess the, the, the sort of idea, half-formed idea that I would tee up for you guys to respond to, if you please, 
um, has to do with realism. So realism, she really sort of deals with negatively in the book, right? Realism and realistic choices are sort of what these playwrights are opting not to do so that they can um, uh, make certain things visible or uh, uh, I guess get around what she later in the book calls the impossibility of rendering some of the horrific violence, for example, that uh, arises from the narco-trafficking, et cetera. Um, and it, this put me in mind of uh, a book uh, by Mark Fisher called Capitalist Realism, um, partly because there's a lot of convergence between those two projects, though they're very different. If you, if you don't know Capitalist Realism, it's Mark Fisher's book in which he, he's not talking about a literary mode or a, or a sort of mode of dramatic production, but for him, Capitalist realism is a kind of atmosphere or set of attitudes that we live under uh, according to which the, it's impossible to think of the end of capitalism. It's impossible to think of the outside of it. Um, and for, in that book, he makes a distinction between reality, which is uh, for him in his sort of Marxist way of thinking, a kind of fabrication, a kind of ideological project that convinces us that there's no alternative. He makes a distinction between that and the real um, in the kind of Lacanian sense, a sort of unrepresentable, rep, uh, yes, unrepresentable um, uh, background to existence. And for Fisher, the sort of places where you can see the real outside of the reality that capitalism has created are phenomena like ecological devastation, um, mental health epidemics, and bureaucracy. So it got me to think about the, the, the status of realism in this book, and the question, I guess the question I was wondering is, would Ybarra and Fisher you know, agree about the status of these plays? Is it, are the sort of non-realistic choices, the formalistic choices, ways of representing what Fisher would call the real? Um, that's pretty, I don't know, that's a very narrow question. It also got me thinking about the sort of contrast between that and the sort of older generation or, or I don't know, the older phenomenon of social realism where uh, Marxist projects were actually advanced by showing the gritty reality of phenomena and asking the audience to respond to it. So, um, uh, Kareem, Sarah, I don't know, well, thoughts I, about that, thoughts about the book? I mean, I think one of the things she does right at the top of the book is to say that there, when it comes to representing uh, the border, uh, uh, migration, uh, displacement, and all of which comes with intense amounts of violence, that there's a crisis in representation. And, that, and, and, I, and I think that's where this question of realism is, becomes really, or, or questioning realism becomes really productive, because do we want to restage that gritty violence? But when you, when you call it gritty, it sounds like a really sexy aesthetic, but, but then there's gore. <laughs> And, and in fact, the femicides that she talks about are gore. And, and are we willing to represent that? And how do we represent that? I think there, there's also beyond, beyond a, a political economic reading, I think paying attention to race, there, there, there are cultural aesthetics that, are, uh, that disavow realism, a, a telenovela, melodrama, um, I research Bollywood and it's constantly critiqued for its lack of realism. So I think these, some of her, um, some of the folks that she's invoking are, are working with other aesthetics that aren't invested in realism. So I think that they're aesthetic traditions that complement this, the, this, these, uh, representat these unrepresentable violences, I think, that, that help, her, help these artists escape the, the traps of representation, of real, realistic rep representation. There's also a way in which the book, 
you know, reading it in this moment is, is uh, so I had started the book before a lot of the discussions about um, and the sort of zero to effects of the zero tolerance policy had become widely circulated. And going back to and rereading the book in the context of that, and particularly issues around movement across borders and limitations on, on bodies, and, and um, I was thinking of the, uh, what ha you know, the, this is sort of to blend se segments, but the, the performance last night of the fall and the invoking of the quote from those in, in Syria, like, we lost the battle of the image, we lost the war of the image because we remained an image. And so I think you can inflect that idea back into some of what Ibarra is doing here. Um, I was also struck by the similarities to uh, feminist theater criticism and its critique of, critiques of realism and the way in which certain modes of representation uh, unwittingly or, or unwillingly still reify the conditions in which they are, 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 are representing and thereby limit our imagination to think beyond them. I was also really struck in this book uh, by the title, um, this notion of the times of neoliberalism, in that we are not in a singular uh, unified temporality here, but that many of us are experiencing different temporalities, different kinds of neoliberalism and, and its effects and in different locations. And so there's a, a sense of plurality, which of course is, is very um, antithetical to some of the, the tenets, the central tenets of realism, especially those based on a climactic plot structure. So there's a, there's a sense in which she is both formally trying to work, a, work against some of the, the, the central tenets of the of what we think, I think of the sort of major genre that she's working in is, is in the sort of aesthetics that Kareem points to. But I also think she's trying to capture in some ways the reality of this moment, which absolutely defies realism. I mean, there are many days when I'm like, I, this can't be reality, right? This can't be really what's happening in the world. Or, or I will very consciously be like, I'm not going to uh, fill my, my world and my mental space with reality. I am going to put lots of fantasy and, and, uh, and imaginative and, and more positive spaces. And uh, I think I think um, also also in the title, something that she, she offers is Latinx theater. You know, and not Latino Latina, but is really working with uh, queer theory. And so, when you invoke feminist and queer theory, it, it was uh, in uh, Jill Dolan's uh, *Feminist Spectator* that I first I read for the first time that realism is an aesthetic too. It, it was the first time. And then the next day, I saw a drag queen post online that realness is an aesthetic. Um, and 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 I mean, again, and she says this. She says that her artists are theorists, and and. That was mirrored to me in reading Dolan and reading this drag queen's post. But, but this is an incredibly queer book. And queer, queerness, gender, sexuality are, are central to, to and, and erotics and bodies are, are central to thinking through um, the violence that, that, that happens that is, that is constant on the body. Um, and, you know, uh, there's several queer uh, playwrights, Edward Machado, uh, Victor Casares, Cherry Moraga, uh, Octavia Solis's Dreamlandia, are these really wonderful uh, uh, playwrights that she, she engages. But one, one reading that I loved that she, she did was a reading of uh, the movie The Dallas Buyers Club, right. um, because she, she notes how uh, queer brown bodies are written out of the 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 main story, but she she shows where they are in the background at all times, both in the film and in the the real life story that it's based on, 
and, and very similarly, Riley Snorton's book, uh, Black on Both Sides, revisits the Brandon Tina case to show how black bodies and disabled bodies were part of this white transgender narrative, but are written out of the, 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 the written book and the, the film. So, so I think that they're just, they're, there's an attention to queerness um, and desire and, and tra uh, transgender politics that, that runs through the entire book that, that, that makes it live up to Latinx, just oh. as it lives up to times. Mm -hmm. I no, that's that's yeah. interesting because I thought, I, I think perhaps I was picking up more on the sort of formalistic parts of it, maybe just because of my, I don't know, my training or my own particular interests. And I thought of the Latinx in the title as being the kind of current, you know, consensus view within the field of how you should address what were formerly called Latino and Latina uh, artists. So I, I mean, I, I still, I think you're right that there are, there are moments perhaps in every single chapter where um, you know, a, a queer character or a queer object or, a, you know, a, a reference to queer theory is there, but I don't, I don't feel like it's a central part of the book. Do you know what I mean? I feel like she, if there's something that unifies what these different playwrights are doing for her, it's different, you know, modes of representation that all touch upon some, you know, this historical phenomenon she identifies as neoliberalism. Well, so I don't. I don't think there's consensus around Latinx, and I think this. Exactly. I could be wrong. I think this might be the first book with Latinx, uh, scholarly book with Latinx in its title. There and there's several um, think pieces on uh, in in a couple of different journals on whether Latinx is useful, and linguists are pushing back and saying no, this the language should not be changed, and so it's not, it's not a consensus. But, but I think, I, I actually, maybe I know a little too much, but I, <laughs> um, but I, I, I think queer theory and, and queer folks have been central to Patty writing this book. I, I saw um, her post on Facebook when she first got the, the proofs of this that, uh, she she put up a picture of text from Victor Casares's one of Victor Casares's plays that it, that is the epigraph of a chapter, and she wrote about how when he was uh, an MFA student at Brown, he really shaped her view of uh, or reshaped her epistemology and an approach to this book, and got her thinking about how the the market for HIV drugs. <laughs> Uh, paralleled narco-trafficking and, and the sourcing of, of uh, dr antiretroviral drugs across the border, in fact, um, paralleled mm -hmm. uh, the trade of other, other drugs. So, um, and, and, and Victor's aesthetics are incredibly queer. He's obsessed with telenovelas and poppers and, uh, and rimming and all these other things. And, and so I, I think that their intimate connections um, are, are really important, and that's why he, he also keeps appearing throughout the, the book. But it's there in the book as well, I mean, and, and theoretically, right, beyond the, the, the choice. And, and the, perhaps one of the most important places where that shows up is, in the, is at the beginning, in the introduction, where she talks about neoliberalism um, as being an, uh, an economic process that is also deeply attached to subject formation. Mm -hmm. And she draws heavily on Foucault in those early sections. And of course, Foucault becomes really important in this context because, of course, wherever power exists, right, for Foucault, it also engenders its, its opposition. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was incredibly important, not necessarily in who is queer or how queer aesthetics are, are 
deployed throughout the book, although it is. But like, this was a hard book for me to read. It's a, it's a difficult idea to confront because it's hard to find moments of optimism. And yet I would, I would submit that where that optimism happens is in a notion of a kind of queer utopian future and alternative space. And so I think the book is intensely queer beyond what it draws on in terms of, of topics, but also how it deploys them, the range of theories that she, that she draws on. And, and for me, it actually recalled an earlier conversation when we read Jessica Berman's book, mm -hmm. right? Which, um, which was much more uplifting, I have to say, um, in many ways. Um, but there was a way in which, uh, you know, Berman really found a way to map uh, prose and, uh, and style to subject. And I felt like uh, Ibarra did something very similar here um, in a way that did not ultimately make me feel powerless or uh, as if it was all gonna kind of collapse. Um, although, you know, jury's still out. Um, but the, you know, it really, there was, a, there was a, and I think that's where the optimism for me, was found in it was found in the book. I think it's a, a really outstanding work. Yeah, I think there it's it's definitely outstanding. I agree with you that the sort of there's difficulty because of the nature of the topics, and there's a lot of I don't know. You know, the readings are very uh, detailed, and the contextual setup for these phenomena is very um, it's very intensive. And so the the last three of the four body chapters deal with. Um, uh, I believe it's the um, Cuban exodus by Raft in the in 1993, um, and then femicide uh, in Ciudad Juarez, but also elsewhere, which is just a, a diabolical and awful and, and confusing topic. And she doesn't try to she doesn't try to give a tidy explanation for it. She gestures at the sort of frustration of sociologists and and um, uh, you know law enforcement and and, and other officials to try to figure out why this is happening precisely where it is. And she doesn't give you a kind of tidy explanation of, of how neoliberal policies just automatically create this. It's, it's upsetting. And then, you know, nar narco trafficking in, in the fourth chapter. So, um, yeah, it is a different, <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult in that way. I would say that I, I don't find it particularly optimistic. There's, there's a, a short conclusion and you know, obviously the bulk of the work of the book would have been done before Trump was elected, you know, largely on a, a, a political program of demonizing uh, people from Latin America and, and Mexico in, specifically. But she has a chance to address that. I think the sort of what you get instead of optimism or <laughs> as an option for optimism is the idea that these are theater artists creating ways of thinking about this sociopolitical moment and what happens from the thinking, who knows. But, but I think that there's an optimism in that we, these artists continue to make in the face of violence that, that's really important in that, you know, even the, the chapter on femicides has this really beautiful <laughs> um, imagination of women who've been, been killed escorting each other through the, through the world in their afterlife and, and doing the, the reparative work of taking care of each other and telling each other what they missed uh, on the what telenovela episodes they missed on the ground uh, or in life, um, and so they're, they're, I, I think she's attentive to some sort of some reparative aesthetics. She also thinks about uh, appropriations of indigeneity and and follows playwrights who perhaps didn't uh, Latino 
uh, Latinx playwrights in the US who appropriate indigeneity and then return to their aesthetics later to, to have a more ethical relationship um, with indigenous people. So I think that there are some, some moves she makes to, to say that we can continue to make and that we shouldn't be completely stalled by the crisis of representation even though things are so ugly. And, I, and the, the chapter on femicide that her her, ex her description of the political and cultural crisis was so clear. I've never read anything so precise and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. All right. Um, um, I, I, I think Patty, Patty's been an important mentor to me and, and, and I think it's worth acknowledging her contributions to this conference too mm -hmm. and, and to this organization she served as president. Um, and, and I, was, I was on the governing council with her and, and just the, the amount I've learned from her. I, I feel really lucky to be able to discuss this book on this panel. Um, and I, 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 maybe we can shift to talking about yes, the it's conference? Yes, it's, it's a perfect setup for the next topic, which is um, uh, the conference itself. Uh, uh, Patricia Barra is immediate past president of ATHA. Um, we're here on Saturday afternoon into evening. We've had, uh, in some cases, many, many days of, of conference activities to absorb. Um, uh, I, I don't know, I saw a, a, a variety of things and, and interesting things, but uh, let me not lead off. Um, uh, uh, Kareem, what, what, what do you think of ATHA 2018? <laughs> um, I was on the conference committee. Oh. Um, so if you didn't like it, blame me. <laughs> I, I'm happy to accept that. I, um, I've learned so much, uh, specifically about protest. I think I think that you know the the theme, theaters of revolution, pedagogy, protest, and performance. Um, I've I've learned a lot about what it what it takes to put a body out into space or choose not to bring your body into space in order to make change. Um, and this can happen in classrooms, and this can happen um, out on the street. But but I I want to acknowledge how many people here uh, who are Producing scholarly work and creative work are also doing political work, um, and and being arrested, teaching people to dance in order to feel good in times of crisis, uh, supporting their students who sh who after the election of Donald Trump weren't sure if they could come to class. Uh, there was a, a great uh, session I just attended a couple of hours ago on st when students revolt, <laughs> and when students say. This class is not doing what I needed to do for me, um, and and it and it can be incredibly complex and difficult. And and the participants offered strategies um, and opened up a really beautiful dialogue. But but I, I one thing I'm really taking away from the question of protest is who's able to do what when it comes to protest, because uh, whether it's privilege that allows us to show up in public or post publicly on our Facebook or whether it's um, people who are undocumented who can't risk um, showing up in, in the ways that they would like to. Uh, I, I just found that a, a really productive uh, conversation, but maybe maybe someone can was talk there, about Kareem, pedagogy or- Kareem, was there a so session forth. where that hmm. particularly landed for you or an event that yeah, at the conference? Um, I think it was it was across the two plenaries um, where one plenary really spoke about 
the, I think, the neoliberal institution and its in engagement with EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion, a language that seems really commodifiable and one that board of trustees will say, yes, good, do the, do the EDI work. And then another that said, my body, and then a plenary session on protest that said, my body is hurt, I'm, I don't feel safe, I don't, I've never done, I've never put my body out there before. Uh, the kind of, there was a, a, a an engagement with risk that I think the language of equity, diversity, and inclusion doesn't engage with, isn't risky. Um, so that, that, it's across those two panels, that plenary sessions that I really saw what, what's at stake, I think. So uh, I would agree with with everything and 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 frankly, I'm I'm rather displeased, Kareem. I feel like you're kind of showing up the uh, the the people who are regularly here. So we may not invite you to come back <laughs> again. Um, I, I, can I can I point out that you made you made this? Um, Sarah was my undergraduate professor at Colgate University. I took children's theater with Sarah, um, but Sarah was also like the most important. Sarah made me this queer, um, <laughs> because there. You're welcome, everyone. You're very welcome. No, but really, like, I mean, you did, you did the, you did the, the, the emotional representational work, and this is why EDI does matter, right? It, it matters that you were there, um, but yeah. So, but all, all this fabulousness is is your doing. Well, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, and, and I am really um, delighted to have you uh, on the podcast. Um, hopefully not for the last time. We'll have you again. Um, without taking away any, anything that, that um, uh, Kareem points to, I, I, I'd like to shift focus just to, um, well, to the things that I like also, um, which is to say that I think this is the conference that has had the most... Uh, digital content and most explicitly and, and by a significant factor. Um, usually it's like one or two panels and I feel like there have been so many I can't go to them all this time. And, and yet you do hear, and I, you alluded to it in your introduction panel, the, this uh, tendency to push against or even uh, vilify screens and screen culture as antithetical to, to theater and theatricality. And I'm, I guess I'm, I'm t kind of tired of this. Um, and I will just say as a, a little mini soapbox, for those of you who've attended other things I've gone to here, I've said this before, I'm also deeply resistant to this being couched as um, in, in generational terms, as if this is a problem for young people. Um, uh, as I said in my early morning session, you know, I've gone to plenty of faculty meetings where everybody's on their phones or, you know, doing like email on their iPads or, you know, surfing Facebook and things like this. So, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really interested in how we can kind of push beyond that, and I've and I've learned a lot and gained a lot from uh, from hearing how other people are are engaging with with digital culture and digital technologies um, throughout. And it's not, you know, I made it sound as if it's a kind of a, a shift, but but wrapping back around, I just came from a session, um, uh, Digital Revolutions 2.0, um, which was really remarkable with Elizabeth Hunter, who is here, and Jennifer Parker Starbuck, with whom I collaborate fairly frequently, so I'll take credit for what she does, and, um, and, and Elisa Morrison, who somehow manages to be wonderful independent of me. I don't know how that's possible. Um, but it was really, really incredible, and I think increasingly you, re you can't think about 
what we're doing in theater and performance studies, and, and you really can't think about EDI and these issues of representation without also thinking through the ways in which access and digital uh, media and digital representation and the way in which these technologies and platforms are deployed both for and against marginalized communities and that they can become incredibly important tools and yet our very engagement with them is opening us up to real to, to very real vulnerabilities and and how that happens as well and who chooses to engage and who chooses to to move against and so I think um, I've been really encouraged by the degree to which that discourse has, has saturated AFID this year, and I, um, I want to thank those of you who are in the room who, who have uh, done work or supported work or have attended um, this kind of work, and, and so thank you. Great. How about you, panel? What have you... Um, been yeah. excited by here at Atha. Well, I feel like it's been a great, a great conference. I'm not just saying that because Kareem is here and he helped plan it, um, and, was, and was apparently in half the sessions at, of the conference as well. Um, uh, but I thought it was great. There's this abundance of um, of sessions that I wanted to go to. I had to. This, I will say this in, in all respect to Atha, which has been important to my career and my intellectual and professional development. That there, some Athas I have not felt like there was anything on the program I was particularly excited to see for you know an afternoon. And this. Conference conference, I was skipping things that I wanted to see because there were other things I wanted to see more. Um, I, I wish that I could have done the, the workshop by Tectonic Theater on devised um, work, moment work. I, I'm teaching a co-teaching a class on devised theater in the fall, uh, and using that book, we've decided to just use it on the basis of having read it, and now we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I had to skip that. Um, uh, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to um, ONTAP podcast co-host Harvey Young's presidential address, which I thought was really good. Um, uh, you know, he speaks quickly, Harvey. We know this from, from the <laughs> podcast. Um, uh, but in there was great stuff. He made an acknowledgment of living in a world of uh, what he called planned misfortunes, um, which I thought was an elo eloquent uh, way of describing a lot of the things that are, that are on our minds at this conference. And he... Um, you know, the, the Atha presidential address is a sort of big tent, make everybody feel good, uh, make us feel like we're all together, uh, uh, rhetorical uh, action, and I feel like he, he really nailed it. I appreciated his acknowledgement of theater people being social people, which we are, and um, so I, I was... I was, I was happy in that moment. Um, what else? Uh, I, I, I have seen uh, all round tables and no sort of you know, three talking head, 20 minute paper sessions just by accident. Um, but I was at a great uh, round table um, yesterday. Sarah, you were there too on um, the Museum of the Bible, uh, organized by John Fletcher with um, uh, uh, Jill Stevenson, Henry Bile, Megan Sanborn Jones, Jody Cantor, Scott Magelson, uh, a friend of the podcast. Um, and that was fabulous. It was, uh, you know, I don't know anything about the Museum of the Bible. I'm aware of, you know, why different people in that room would be interested in it. Uh, Henry, with his research on, uh, you know, biblical theater, and and um, uh, Scott, with his with his interest in, um, you know, a variety of offstage sort of museum uh, uh, phenomena, simming, etc. Um, John Fletcher, of course, and his interest in, um, you know, political performance that uh, is not, uh, I don't know what we would think of as, as liberal or progressive in his background as, as an evangelical Christian. Um, and it was just fabulous to watch people uh, respond to this uh, artifact that they had all seen and absorbed. And they also used a really novel timing device, which was, if I picked it up correctly, um, you know, there's six or seven of them 
and you get, there were, there were pre-circulated texts and, and communication, and then you got five minutes um, to speak, and uh, John would start a timer, and when that five minutes went off, the timer beeped, and then you had to offer a question to the group, you had to stop yourself, so it, it enforced the equitable division of time, which I appreciated. Um, so I, th I thought that, that session was just a lot of fun. I, uh, I just, I, I thought it was phenomenal also that there were so many panels that were focused on decolonizing, on de disability. I, th I think that the conference topic makes a difference and Theaters of Revolution really pushed people um, uh, to, to be here and also invited people I think who haven't been here. The fact that so many panels offered a land acknowledgement mm -hmm. was really uh, new and, 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 and an important, important for Atha and, and I, I should, we should acknowledge that Bethany Hughes uh, was who was on the um, conference committee and who's here um, help helped us uh, crafted that language and and made that possible and and, and that's really important and Beth Bethany also a Northwestern graduate um, but I, I I was really reminded at this Atha that like seeing my graduate school cohort is incredible and amazing and reassuring <laughs> um, so many of them were here but are also in this room and and. They've made me feel like I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, they, you know, I've, I've had these worries about, is my scholarship legible? Is, um, is Boston too white? <laughs> um, and they, they assured me I was not crazy <laughs> uh, in, in worrying about these things. That, that, that there are, I think that there are um, complications and crises in, uh, in, in the way that performance ethnography is being read and received at this moment, and, and my colleague Pavitra Prasad writes about this, the neoliberal university and, and, its, and the possibilities that it makes uh, for doing long-term ethnographic research. And so my own worries about how I do my research that I've had for 10 years now, I'm able to talk with people who I've been having these conversations with for 10 years. So, so those in-between moments where you just stop and talk have been especially enriching in, uh, at this conference. And we went out to a bar last night and my friends confirmed that all the gay boys in Boston look exactly the same and it's not just me who thinks that. Um, so I, I, I appreciated your validation. <laughs> I don't know, Sarah, what else did you see? Did you see anything else you wanted to Well, I, I, I went to a, a number of um, roundtables. I thought the performance last night was really quite extraordinary. I, I missed that. Can you describe it in a... No. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. No, no, I can't. Um, uh, Sister Sylvester, the fall, it was a... Uh, I'm sorry, yes, the fall, it was a, a lecture performance, a sort of response to um, Peter Whitehead's um, film, The Fall, about the 1968 occupation, student occupation of Columbia, um, and sort of a reflection on him, and it just, it complicated representation and image and document and verisimilitude and theatricality, and there was a live chicken, and... <laughs> Uh, there was some performance art and there was nudity and it was fabulous and, and I'll just leave it at that. And there, it, it was not easy to get that chicken uh, into the hotel because... I can't imagine. But, but <laughs> Anne Shanahan made it happen. The, yeah. Kudos to the conference folks yeah. who turned that space into a performance space uh, because it really was not intended as such and, and, and they sort of dealt with all kinds of stuff. It was, it was, so it was lots of fun. Yeah. 
Um, I, we didn't mention the, the keynote address um, by uh, Chiara Hudes and Gabriela Sanchez, which I thought was remarkable. Um, and uh, Chiara in particular let, uh, uh, I mean, she gave an account of um, stepping back from the theatrical world um, after the opening of uh, I Miss You Like Hell that reminded me of um, this um, really popular, uh, remarkable stand-up special on Netflix called Nanette um, uh, by a, a comedian whose name is escaping me at the moment. Hannah, Hannah Gatsby. Gatsby. Hannah Gatsby, thank you. Um, <laughs> but it was at the entire room in, in chorus. Um, uh, but it was, it, it was similarly, it was a sort of uh, account, I think, of the wounds that, that Kiara had received um, even on her path to great success as a playwright. Um, and so I, I, I just thought that that was a memorable moment and something that I'll definitely be thinking about later. I thought the, the, the dialogic structure of the keynote um, of her with Gabriela Sanchez, her sister, yeah. and their responses to each other was really wonderful um, and, and a nice break away from the kind of uh, authoritarian monologue that usually is the embodiment of the <laughs> keynote address, right? And so that, uh, again, formally and structurally was really, was really lovely. Yeah. Um, quick side note that might actually take us into our next uh, episode. I attended the final dress rehearsal for Miss You Like Hell. Um, oh, wow. In which, as a kind of wonderful metaphor, um, I don't know if people have seen that, but the ending image is, is uh, performed on stage with a giant wall that is the, the, the border wall, um, uh, and, it, and it kind of comes out on stage. And, and the kind of wonderful, productive uh, failure of the final dress is that the wall didn't arrive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the two key characters who are like touching hands through the wall were just there in the middle of the stage <laughs> touching hands. And as I, you know, was talking with folks about the show and reflecting back on it, I was like, that, I'm really glad I saw the wrong version. Like, I saw the best version of that show, which is where the wall doesn't even get there. Yeah. Um, and I sort of felt bad for everybody else who was going to see the, the good versions or the, you know, the mm -hmm. correct versions. And so it, it made me, um, again, this is, this is my attempt at a sort of hammy segue. It made me aware of, like, how wonderful failure can be. Right, and particularly in the theater, the, those sort of you know happy accidents. Sarah, speaking of failure, um, uh, we yes, that is frequently. Yes. I get that a lot in my life. Like yeah, Sarah, yeah. and speaking <laughs> of failure, speaking of failure, Sarah. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we no, wanted to move you, on panel. and do a segment um, about our professional failures, and also speaking of failure, I see Harvey Young uh, has <laughs> come. No, 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 no. Um, that was an ironic statement, obviously. Um, Harvey, our um, uh, usual uh, co-host, has, has uh, drifted into the room. Harvey, would you join us for this last segment and talk about a professional failure? <laughs> okay, yeah. Yay. So, while Har while Harvey is getting situated, and I think he will share a microphone uh, with Sarah, um, I'll just say that this is an idea. I don't remember whose it was. It might have been Sarah's, too. You know, well, so can I just give quick credit? Yes. So this is actually, this comes from my partner, Lena Beijung, who's a professor and director of the School of Social Work, um, in the, P the director of the PhD in the School of Social Work at the University of Buffalo. And this is an, um, an exercise that she does with her students, um, which she calls the curriculum mortis. Right, which is or the shadow CV, yes. which is where she invites senior faculty to talk about the gaps, the omissions, the failures, the absences, the things that didn't pan out, the projects abandoned, the jobs not gotten. 
because for graduate students in particular, we look at, and, and for, you know, as junior faculty even, we look up the line in the field, and we think that these people have traveled these unbroken, right, uh, you know, just like, like unimpeded pathways to greatness, right? Um, and it's really helpful to, to go back and recover and rethink where are the gaps, where are the problems, what are the obstacles that people overcame, and I think there's a certain privilege that comes when you get to a point in your career where you have been successful, where it's really important to mark the things that were hard and difficult uh, and where one struggled or took time off or went on a more circuitous route. And so, so that, so I, 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 you know, I do want to give credit where credit is due. So sorry for that digression. No, that's that's great. Sarah, do you want to lead off by talking about one of your uh, uh, curriculum mortises items? So yes, I will say that that um, well, I you know, so I kind of failed earlier today. <laughs> um, I was. Um, uh, Will Lewis, uh, recently graduated, uh, has his PhD from the University of Colorado Boulder, um, invited me very nicely to be on a round table and, and I got to go first. And I kind of forgot what I was supposed to talk about. Um, so I talked about something and I felt pretty good about it actually until I sat down and I opened the program on my iPad and then I realized that I had actually said almost nothing about what it said I would talk about in the program. Uh, so apologies for that. Um, my biggest professional failure um, is, uh, are, are two jobs I did not get. Um, I interviewed for, um, right out of uh, University of Michigan in uh, the year 2000, I uh, applied for a job at Cornell University, and I got a campus interview, um, and I was thinking quite a lot of myself, um, and, and I really, really, really wanted the job, and I really did not get it. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't even think I was close, right? I, I think, but, uh, but as part of that, and, and I've talked about this with, with other graduate st students that I've worked with in the, it was one of the most productive jobs I did not get. Because I hung out for two days with Ellen Gaynor, and I hung out for two days with Rebecca Schneider, and both of them remained really uh, key, uh, close professional contacts. And I got access to them on, uh, in the course of that interview uh, for the job I did not get that, that ended up being really productive and, and useful. And the second is that my career actually took uh, a, a big shift when I joined the University at Buffalo in 2005 uh, from Colgate University. Um, and I was a joint appointment in theater and dance and in media study at a time when media study was turning digital. So I went there with my, you know, formal film analysis and my, you know, critical cinema studies and no one was interested in that. Um, they were doing VR, so I quickly kind of retooled and reshuffled myself, and um, it ended up being one of the best things that, that ever happened to me, and I found a real, a real passion and a real calling there. Um, but that was for a job in which I was number two. Uh, somebody else got the job I had applied for in theater and dance. Um, actually, a really wonderful per person, um, Amy Holtzapfel, Australia Holtzapfel, who is now chair of, of theater at uh, Williams College. Um, she got the job, very deservedly, um, and I was brought in as a trailing spouse. Um, and I say that because we sometimes don't, uh, don't acknowledge partner accommodations as legitimate and that those of us who are sometimes trailing spouses feel like somehow we are not as valid or we haven't earned our space in the same way. Um, and so, uh, so I went and I didn't get a job. I was brought in as a partner. Um, I took a pay cut and a status cut and an ego cut. Um, and it ended up being really positive for me because it made me move and, and grow in some different ways. So, um, so those are two of the many failures that I can recount, but, but thanks for asking, panel. <laughs> <laughs> you, made, you made us do it. Um, 
why don't I go next, uh, just to get it out of the way? Um, I brought a menu of failures. Um, like uh, Sarah, I have uh, done campus visit interviews for uh, plural jobs that I was not offered, but th that's not on the menu. Um, uh, what is on the menu is I, I planned a symposium, a conference that was that failed. Um, I directed a play um, at, at a university that, that was not good and failed. Um, and then I have a sort of research article project that is uh, at least up to this moment a failure. So what do you guys want to hear about? <laughs> Just someone shout it out, what? Ah, okay. This will be a special pleasure because John Amy is here, who was my professor in graduate school at Brown, um, and he probably, I think, I'm sure he saw this. Um, he saw everything. Uh, so the second play that I ever directed, full-length play that I directed, was Mac Wellman's Dracula, and it didn't go really well. Um, uh, and I'll give you a little bit of context for this, um, the first play I ever directed was at, at Brown at, at Production Workshop, and it was um, Ibsen's The Wild Duck, and that was a beautiful experience. I had an amazing cast, and um, it was my first time directing, and I loved the play, and I was like, I'm gonna you know, do this, and it, it went well, and it, people came and saw it twice, and I was just, I thought it was wonderful, and I think the faculty were impressed, and what had happened was that a fellow graduate student um, was slated to direct Mac Wellman's Dracula that spring, the following semester. And she had a health issue, and she had to drop out. And I think what happened was the faculty was like, well, young Master Kemp has shown some talent for the stage, and why don't we just have him direct it? And I was so flattered, and it was, on the main, it was a main stage production, so it had better resources and professional designers, and it was Mac Wellman's Dracula, and I was like, yes, great, yes, I'll do it. Well, you know, it, it's a postmodern, highly ironic uh, sort of send-up of Dracula, and I didn't pick it, and I didn't know, I didn't get it. Like, I really didn't, I didn't have a vision for it. Um, uh, I had a lot of energy and, and ego, and I was like, I can do this. And then there were a series of, of just sort of unfortunate things that happened. There's, there are song lyrics for the play, but there's not music that comes with it, so you have to find someone to write the music for it. The director who passed the project on to me had found a, music, uh, a, 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 a music writer, a musician, who would write, a composer, thank you, um, who would write this music, and as soon as uh, the, uh, the, the project came into my hands, that person backed out, because it was a friend of the other director. Um, so I had to go find composers. And uh, being unable at first to find one composer, I had to get three different people to write you know, two, one or two songs a piece, which made it very difficult to manage. Um, uh, there were other things that went, went badly. Um, we had the, the costume designer, I remember, um, uh, uh, had, had epilepsy and was pregnant, and so had top, stopped taking her anti-seizure medication uh, because she was pregnant and needed to, and had a seizure in, in one of the dress rehearsal nights the Wednesday before we opened and had to be hospitalized right before the opening, and she was fine, and, and that, that was all fine. Um, uh, there were other things that I just remember it being a kind of, you know, cluster F, uh, this is a family podcast. Um, uh, and it just, like, what, what I remember was, you know, the thing, the thing sold out every night because it was called Dracula, so people bought tickets and came to see it. Um, but that it was just, aesthetically, it was a mess. It didn't make, it was not good. Um, and my ad advisor, Spencer Golub, who's a wonderful director, um, you know, afterwards was giving me some feedback, and he was like, you know what you needed to do 
in that case of that play was to have a version of Dracula in mind that you're working against, right? So you need to do, you know, you need to pick one version of this and have fun with it. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Um, so that was a failure. And the thing is, it's fine. You, you, you have projects that don't work out and you, it hurts. It, it, sometimes it hurts to think about it later, but it's fine. So that was one of my many failures. Um, Kareem, you are assistant professor at Tufts, widely recognized, very active, widely respected. Have you had failures, hiccups, obstacles along the way to your success? Um, I, I guess I w when I thought about professional failures, I, I, I wasn't thinking about jobs and careers, but, but really I ended up thinking about what I call my research. Um, and as someone who was really gung-ho about performance ethnography, I never thought of myself as a historian. Um, but Kamala Vishweshwaran, who wrote Fictions of Feminist Ethnography, tells us that when people tell us something, they tell, they tell it to us because they want us to write it down. <laughs> right? We are historians. Um, but, but it took me a long time to, to get to that. And, and the thing that, that got me there was that one of my, uh, my queer aunties in Chicago, Ifti Nassim, who was a Pakistani activist, uh, passed away um, in, in 2011. And Ifti was a prolific poet, had all the, had uh, hundreds and hundreds of books in his uh, apartment from, uh, in various languages, had all these cassettes of Pakistani singers, had this wardrobe of furs and Kalkanai jeans and bejeweled hats and was, was really, uh, had an archive. <laughs> um, and when he passed away very suddenly, I didn't think about what would happen to those things. And uh, South, Asian uh, South Asian American Digital Archives reached out to me and said, hey, do you know what happened to Ifti's stuff? I, I, and really, I, I was the person closest to him who could have checked in about this, but I never thought about it. And I went to his apartment and went to the doorman and said, oh, can I see Ifti's partner? Can, can I go upstairs? And he's like, Actually, his family kicked him out, and um, be because they they didn't accept if these queerness, his family kicked his partner out, and also and so, and I said, where well, where's all his stuff? And they said they threw it all away. Hmm. Um, and and you know I I, I should have I've read Anne Svetkovich's work. I'm like I know that queer archives are ephemeral and difficult to find um, and constantly disappearing, but. I never thought, I, if I, because I didn't think of myself as a historian or an, and an archivist, I didn't think that I had to do that work myself too until someone else approached me about it. Um, so, so I feel like I also made it difficult for future scholars and thinkers and activists and artists who want to follow in if, if these legacy to define to that. And that, that's something that weighs on me, but also has moved me to think about, okay, what can I hold on to? <laughs> what can I screenshot right now? <laughs> what can I, you know, what can I put in the box? Um, because I, I need, I also, it's my responsibility to, to keep things too. Uh, not just stories and information, but, but things. It's a, a lot of responsibility to take on yourself for that event, but. Um, Harvey, what? <laughs> Where, what, what, what has been a failure that has stuck with you or do you think people should hear about? There's so many. 
there, there, there's, there's, there's no lack of them. There, there's so many. Um, I think that, uh, God, there's so many. One of them is um, uh, the one that lingers, that, that burns still. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I, 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 wrote, I, I you, know, you, you write drafts of your dissertation chapters, right? And, and I revised and I revised and I revised. Uh, to the point where I just loathed my chapter. I, I just loathed it. And, and, and we all know, you know, we're supposed to back up and do multiple backups, and I did, but I so disliked my chapter, I deleted every version imaginable, you know, because uh, I was just like, this is awful. I can't stand this. You know, I'm better off starting from scratch. Uh, and so, you know, it's like I did this all on the weekend, and then the next day I went out on a Monday, and I was talking with Tim Murray, you know, who was my advisor. Uh, and, and I told him, I was like, Tim, like this thing is just not any good. Um, it'll never be any good. I got rid of it. And he's like, Harvey, that was the best thing you've written thus far. In fact, th the letter of recommendation that I have for your job applications is about that chapter. Um, you know, you need to search for it. Do whatever you can, see if it can be retrieved. And, and it was gone. It was totally gone. Um, and, and I had this moment of just like, oh, like I, I just destroyed my career. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and, and I tried to rewrite that chapter from memory because now that someone said they liked it, you try to be like, what did I say, right? <laughs> and, 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 I, and I couldn't do it. Um, and I just gave up entirely. And, and I keep thinking that there was this thing that I, that, you know, that, 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 I, that, that had promise um, that, Never, never realized. And one other thing I'll say is that along those lines, um, you, know, you know, TDR has an essay competition. It's like the student essay competition. Um, and sometimes your advisors and friends can be, can, can be too honest. Um, you know, so I found out I was a finalist. I was one of three finalists you know, for the TDR student essay competition. Uh, and I was feeling really good because that meant I had a one in three chance you know, of winning the TDR student essay competition. Uh, but, you know, that was the year that, uh, you know, the judging committee decided that none of the essays were good enough, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, you know for, for, for an award, you know, so they never formally named finalists and they just they decided not to uh, give out the award that year, you know, so when you think about like the gaps, you know, or the things that are like missing from, from it, you know, uh, I like to think of a line on my CV that says like, I was not good enough. <laughs> you know? You know, you know, to be to, to even be shortlisted publicly, <laughs> you know, you know, for that award. Single-handedly yeah. whited out the TDR <laughs> Student Essay Award in one year. Yeah. That's amazing, and I feel uh, not to wrap this all up into some sort of I don't know um, what's the adjective. I want to say, you know, sappy way, but I think part of thriving in this field is uh, tenacity and persistence and taking rejection, taking multiple rejections and still working and revising and putting yourself out there because, um, yeah, I mean. I mean, you, I mean, the thing about the academy, right, is that you, you spend so many hours stressing, right? You know, there's no lack of anxiety that we put on ourselves. Um, sleepless nights, you know, three in the morning, need to work. Um, and whenever there's a setback, you just think, like, you know, like, is this a sign that I was not cut out to, to be here? Um, you know, and it, and it takes sometimes hearing these stories, but also it just takes people, you know, coffees and lunches and hanging out with friends and creating community. Robin's really good at that. Um, you know, to bring people together, um, you know, to uh, remind you of why we are here to support one another and to see us through. Yeah. And let's just remember that sometimes tenacity is not, is not enough. 
that, that you can be really good, that you can do all the things right, that you can work really hard. And given the, the realities of the job market and the ways in which universities and colleges uh, have changed and are still changing, that that might still not be enough to get the kind of you know, perfect situation that you've been pursuing. Um, and that that ought not to be taken internally as a sign of personal failure or failing, but that you know, you're doing, we're all doing the best we can in these circumstances. The one final thought maybe on, on, this, on this topic of failure is simply to also say at the same time, I think we should all remember that nobody but nobody ever said, theater professor, well, you know, because I got to pay the bills, <laughs> right? Every single one of us at some point did this because it was fun, because it was pleasurable, and we did it over the objections and the good common sense of the people who loved us. <laughs> And, you know, and so however, you know, our careers unfold, right, that moment, that spark is worth treasuring and, and trying to hang on to for as long as you, as you possibly can. On that note, um, why don't we move into our last segment, uh, which is our drafts. Um, these are, you know, incomplete thoughts, uh, ideas for projects we might pursue, observations that we, that struck us in the classroom or in the library or in the bathroom or whatever. Um, uh, 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 Kareem, uh, do you have a draft you want to share? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, I'm obsessed with aunties. And um, specifically, it's so, what better way to celebrate finishing a first manuscript, uh, first draft of my manuscript by thinking about my next project. Congratulations. Um, which is, uh, ontologies, queer aesthetics of the South Asian auntie. Um, and my obsession with aunties is, is the ways that my own aunties, South Asian women in Ghana, have raised me and have disciplined me lovingly. Um, but but it, it gets me thinking about who has done that kind of work in the academy for me as well, who have been my aunties who have made this possible, have made radicality and queerness um, and friendship and, and solidarity work possible. And, and, and Sarah, Sarah Beijang being one of those people, as well as uh, Patty Ibarra. Um, but, if, but, but auntie being also something that everyone can embody. Um, when, I, when I introduce my pronouns, I, whether, if I'm in drag, it's she, her, hers, and auntie. Or if it's not, it's he, him, his, and auntie. But, but I, do like, I do like the pronoun. Um, as a, as a gender to grow into. But it's, you know, those people have also been Robin Bernstein and E. Patrick Johnson and Soini Madison and Ramon Rivera-Cervera and Brian Herrera and Nick Salvado and Laura Gutierrez. Um, and one way that I do my auntie work every time I write is I ask myself, have you cited a woman of color today? Thank you. Harvey, do you have a draft for us? That's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking recently about uh, funding, actually, sort of funding related to arts and healthcare, uh, because we, when we think about sort of arts and civic engagement, uh, it's fortunately and happily uh, a um, sort of an increasingly in demand uh, and you know uh, more developing area of research. Uh, but there's a diff there's a disparity in terms of funding, right? Uh, and and to give an example, I'm working on a project with the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and you know for the arts and well-being, that project has a grant for 2.5 million dollars you know, uh, through the social sciences, you know, and I, and I wonder, you know, what happens when we acknowledge the validity and the, and the importance of having interdisciplinary partnerships across, um, 
you know, the arts and the sciences, you know, but when the funding disparity is so extreme, you know, that ownership, you know, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, the people who are in the driver's seat uh, in terms of what the outcomes are and also what sources are being cited and included in publications and in public dissemination of work uh, are almost strictly located within the sciences. Um, you know, so where are the opportunities, you know, on the humanities side um, and on the arts side more specifically, you know, for us to level the playing field for arts funding when it engages, you know, well-being and healthcare. Um, so that's what's on my mind right now. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll jump in here and Sarah, you can wrap us up. So I've had this thought on my mind recently about theater and organizing. In a way, this, this touches on something that you said earlier, Kareem, about this conference and protest. Um, so I feel as though there's a kind of basic assumption in our field that there's transferability between what we do as theater people and what we do as um, you know, activists in, in various you know, protest uh, uh, situations. And I'm starting to see that connection in different ways because I have been doing a little bit of organizing myself. Um, I joined an activist organization in 2017, and I won't tell you which one because I don't want to use the podcast to broadcast my political commitments, um, but if you listen carefully to, you know, to the podcast, you probably can figure it out. Um, but I've been doing some organizing um, when I can around my you know, job commitments and my family commitments. Um, and so I feel as though the image that I've had in my mind up to this point is that there's you know, that, that a protest is bodies in space, that there's a kind of transferability between the, the sort of directing and acting facets of theater and performance and protest, because a protest is a rally and a protest is, you know, a sort of public and visible action. Um, uh, but having done some act, uh, some, not some acting, but some uh, organizing, I've actually started to appreciate more the stage management and production management side of organizing, the organizing of organizing. Um, the work that I've been doing uh, with, with people in this organization, there's a lot of crafting of signs and collecting of signatures and securing this space for this time and making sure the people who need to be there are there and making sure that everyone knows what they need to do and making sure you're getting the most out of what's happening. Um, and it's occurred to me that, you know, that the, I've, I've, been, I've turned my garage into a little sort of sign fabrication center. And it's, I, the skills that I have for doing that are skills that I picked up from being in theater, right? How to run an efficient meeting, um, uh, logistics, right? Like that stuff that's not as glamorous in the way that stage management, production management, scenography, often isn't as appreciated or doesn't get the glamour and glory that, um, that acting does. Um, but that has, uh, that's been something that, that has been sort of percolating in my mind. Um, uh, you know, after the, that horrific shooting at Parkland High School and those students who survived and our theater students were so impressive in their media communications and their activism uh, for gun control, there have been observations that these are theater students, and that's why you know that's why they're so they're so good at this. They're also they're also debate students. They're also in communications. Um, but I also think that it's you know it's what you learn backstage also, and even perhaps more so that is important to um, political organizing. So that's my 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 draft. Um, Sarah, what about you? So I am thinking about, and it's really uh, I'm going to focus it mostly on the on the conference. The um, the letting go. And um, this was raised by a, by a participant in the, uh, one of the mentors in the Leadership Institute um, who talked about how um, so much in our lives becomes cumulative, right? I'll do that 
oh, and I should do that, and then something else, oh, and I should, you know, and we get this in, in, in academic administration for sure, right? Someone is always telling you, oh, and by the way, you, you know, can I add this to your plate? And we're very reluctant to let things go, right, and let things kind of, you know, what, what can we make room for? And, um, and that's really hung with me um, over the conference, and I've been thinking a lot about, about letting go. Um, and the other side of that, of course, is generativity, right? So there's, there's letting go, and then there's letting go as, as giving, right? There's not publishing something, not, you know, you might be able to, but someone else should be there and do it, you know, like making room um, for people. I've been thinking a lot about generativity. I had the opportunity to um, participate in a, in a women in theater program roundtable on um, celebrating Ellen Gaynor and her Lifetime Achievement Award from that organization, and that really felt like a gift to be able to publicly thank her for everything that she's done for me. Um, it's also incredibly rewarding to, to see successful students um, that I've had in the past and, and to pretend that they're right when they say like, oh, you know, you did all these great things for me. <laughs> um, when I know that they would have done it, you know, irrespective of me or not. Um, but, I, but I will also say as just a final kind of personal note, um, I am also now letting go of my actual children. Um, in that my younger son is, uh, is leaving to go study abroad for the next year. And so there is a very palpable and very meaningful sense of, of letting go to make, uh, make space for new things. And so I just want to uh, say a quick thank you um, at the end of this to everyone who's been listening to the podcast, um, who's been so generous in their support of, of what we're doing here and who's come today, and, and, and particularly then to turn and, and uh, you know, somebody who, who really made room in a big way, which is panel. This was all um, originally his idea, and I think it's great uh, uh, that you've let us all be a part of it. Thank you. That's very sweet. You're, you're, thank you. Um, you totally caught me off guard there, Sarah, and thank you. And, and the, obviously, this thing would be nothing without um, without you and Harvey and and the, and the other people who've contributed to it, including Kareem, including uh, people in this room who've guested on the podcast. So, um, good feelings all around. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.